Good morning, everybody. Could you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? You know, it's, it's already been noted, but it is Memorial Day, and we are grateful. We recognize this day all those who have fought and gave the ultimate, paid the ultimate price of death so that we can have freedom and have the ability to even worship here today. Do you, you understand that? There are some places around the world, they do not have the freedom to come and worship, but you do, and we're glad you're here today. I'm Pastor Tim, the executive pastor. I preached last week. I'm preaching this week and next week as well, because uh, Pastor John is on vacation. And we are talking about idols, idols being those things that we construct either physically or in our minds that we worship above God. Worship being anything that gives worth to something, anything, an idol is anything that we place above God or we, anything that we show more worth to than God Himself. We looked last week at the first idol being self, and you could listen to that. It's on our website if you, didn't, if you missed that. But today, we are going to look at another idol that we will just simply call money, but it's more than just money. It's treasures, possessions, it's those things that come from wealth. And this idol is a very powerful influence in all our lives, and frankly, probably we all struggle with it. I know I do. And it's an idol that can snatch away our worship from God. And there's so much I could say about it, but I found a little three-minute video that I think can say it more concisely than I can. So we're going to watch this video to kind of uh, introduce this topic. The scriptures describe money as God's primary rival for our devotion. If that's true, if the worship of money is one of the gravest dangers of the spiritual life, then it's imperative to know more than a few Bible verses pulled out of context. It's imperative to know the full counsel of scripture on the nature of money and the source of its power. Some say money is simply neutral, a brute tool like any other. Some say money's a lot like a brick. Bricks can break windows, they can break bone, but they can also build cathedrals. You cannot blame the brick for how it's used. Seems simple. It's not like money has a will of its own, right? If money is like a brick, what happens when we replace the word money with the word bricks? You cannot serve both God and bricks. Hmm. How hard it is for those who have bricks to enter into the kingdom of God. That doesn't seem right. Keep your life free from the love of bricks. The love of bricks is a root of all evil. Perhaps money isn't like a brick after all, because money is more than just an object. Money is one, a store of value, and two, a system of exchange. It's a pathway to countless things our hearts crave. We can trade money for homes and cars and vacations, for power and fame, luxury and esteem, Money can be a tool, but it can also be an idol. The Bible describes money as something that flies and seduces, chokes and entangles us, testifies against us as though it were a spirit, a false god with a will of its own to fool and enslave us. Jesus calls money unrighteous. The Psalms and Proverbs contrast trusting in God with trusting in wealth. They warn against unrighteous means of acquiring and using wealth, and against gaining so much wealth that we become arrogant and satisfied and forget our need for God. 
The Bible even tells us that the desire for wealth is a snare that leads us into harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. In the hands of the godly and wise, money can be a tool of extraordinary good. Whether you have a fortune or two pennies, you can convert what Jesus calls unrighteous mammon and consecrate it for kingdom service, transforming earthly assets into heavenly treasures. You can use it to serve others in amazing ways. But money can also use you as it deceives and distorts, seduces and enslaves. So ask yourself, is money your master or is it your servant? Is money an idol in your heart or a tool in your hands for the construction of the kingdom of God? A lot said there about this thing we call money. Uh, I would submit to you this morning that it is possible, in my mind at least, that money may have the most deceptive abilities of all the idols that we could possibly worship. In, in Luke chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to make a quick comment about it. Jesus speaking says this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's an interesting statement. You know, Jesus, I don't think, ever said, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of murder, or be on guard against all kinds of adultery. Why wouldn't He say that? Because we know what those things are. We don't get halfway through adultery or murder and say, oh, oh wait a minute, this is adultery or murder. The point I'm trying to make is we know those things are very wrong. The problem with money is that we never really know when we cross the line. So Jesus says, be on guard. I mean, isn't it true? We, we need money to, to live, to care for our families, to care, you know, just to live life. We need a job. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but we've got to be careful because we struggle to know when we have crossed over the line and it has become more than just a tool that we use to live life and worship the Lord, and when it becomes actually a God. John Ortberg put it this way, the strange, the strange things about possessions is that we never really know who possesses who. That's why it's so dangerous. Who do you worship? Last week I said, I added to that statement, and I'll do it again today. Who do you really worship? The idea being we can say who we worship, but who do we really worship? Because our words are not always accurate. How we live our lives will say how we really worship. This morning, we're going to look at a man in the New Testament who I think had money as an idol and realized that he needed to do something about it. So we're going to, we're going to work through Luke chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to go through it in sections because it's a story, and it'll be better just to go through it piece by piece. We're going to read the first four verses of Luke 19. Follow along with me. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he, he couldn't see over the crowd or the crowd wouldn't let him in, I'm not sure exactly. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, sycamore fig tree, to see him, 
since Jesus was coming that way. Now, there's several clues we get about Zacchaeus here. Obviously, he was a small man or a short man. We know that he was a tax collector, not like the tax collectors of our days. And I know many of you have had teaching on this, but I, I do need to say in, that, in the Roman system, certainly the tax collectors were commissioned to collect taxes, but they were also allowed to extort money from the people. Anything they could get over and above what the Romans required, they got to keep. They were kind of like mob bosses. They were sinners. They were consequently outcasts in the community. They were hated. They were criminals to the people. Don't think IRS agent. Totally different. Think drug lord. Someone who would go into a community and hook people on drugs so that they could take profit from the people. Tax collectors were predators who preyed on the less fortunate. And the first question you might want to ask yourself is, why would anybody want to be a tax collector? Why would they want to be hated by everybody? Well, it's easy. Money. Because of the money. It was the love of money that caused Zacchaeus to do what he did. But I think if you look at the story, there's something going on in Zacchaeus' life. How do we know that? Because he wanted to see Jesus, and he's willing to do anything he can to see him. Why would he go through such humiliating extremes to see Jesus? Well, I would have to speculate, and so would you, but I think it's possible that he had either heard Jesus speaking or he had heard of Jesus' teaching. And I think, consequently, Zacchaeus is conflicted. In Luke chapter 16, it records a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which you've heard many times, Luke 16, 13 to 15, which is just three chapters back. It says, no one, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve, as we have said many times, both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, now listen to this, the Pharisees who loved money, they were there. They heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you, speaking to the leaders of the day, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. See, Jesus is using this strong strong language to talk about money. Tim Keller said this, what you treasure will will ultimately require you to die for it. Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. I think think Zacchaeus is feeling this conflict. It's like he's worshiping the wrong God. He knows it, and he needs to do something about it. He understands that he is detestable to God. So I'm not sure exactly why he's in conflict, but he is. I think he knows he's wrong. I think it's clear if you read the text. I think he knows he needs to make a change, and I think he knows that Jesus is the answer. So he decides to do something about it, just like we need to decide to do things when we are confronted by the Word of God. Zacchaeus, to see Jesus, says he climbs a tree. Okay, now, now think about that for a moment. I mean, really, you're at a parade. We were in, my wife and I were in Disneyland a few weeks ago, and the the parade came through. There was people everywhere. You've maybe seen that. 
I'm a tall guy, so I could see over it. But Zacchaeus was short, so what does he do? Think about it. You're at a parade, and you see this adult man climb up a tree to see something in the parade. Don't you think that would be a little weird? I mean, the cops would be all over him in this day and age. But he doesn't just climb a tree. He climbs a sycamore fig tree. That's very significant because the fruit of the sycamore fig tree was used to feed the pigs. As we all know, Jews considered pigs unclean. So he's not just climbing a tree and being a little undignified. He's climbing a pig tree. That's how desperate he was. He got to the point that he knew he had something was wrong in his life. He had the wrong thing on the, pedal, on the pedestal, and he was really ready for a new God. So he climbs this tree, and here comes Jesus. Pick the story up at verse 5. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, that's where Zacchaeus was in the tree, he looks up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now catch this. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to the guest of a sinner. Now that word mutter is very interesting. In the Greek, it's diagonguzo. Diagonguzo. The prefix to that word is where we get our word diarrhea. <laughs> Mumbling and complaining under one's breath. Diagonguzo. It's like diarrhea. We even have the term, don't we? Diarrhea of the mouth. We hate it. But as much as we hate it, as we hear this, we think, Zacchaeus, we think of those people, but, but we can kind of understand it if we really think about it. I mean, come on, Zacchaeus was a crook. And he wants to see Jesus? He climbed the tree. Why? Because there were too many people there. But think about it for a minute. Out of all the people Jesus could have picked to recognize the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, important people, another believer, the mayor. Out of everyone, he picks the lowliest, skankiest, most hated sinner of all out of a pig tree. It's crazy. Why would he do that? Why would he pick Zacchaeus? Well, ask yourself for a moment. I mean, I don't really know. I think it's a good question. Why did he pick the 12 disciples? Why did he pick me to be up here today preaching this message to you? Why did he pick you? Have you ever thought about that? We are all like Zacchaeus before we know the Lord. We are all lost criminals, and yet he picks us. And I think there comes a time when we need to be thankful for what Jesus has given us. And then there's another thing in this story that seems Pretty interesting if you don't know the culture of the day. I think we just re read right past it because it's Jesus, right? It seems presumptuous to me that Jesus would like invite himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. I mean, think about that. Somebody, some of you walk up to me today and you say, hey, Tim, we're going to come to your house for dinner tonight. I mean, in my head, I would think, I don't think so. We're not ready for that. Out on the outside, I would probably do something like, you know, we have plans tonight. 
But you know, that just foreign to us. But that was the culture of the day. That was very common in that day. It was acceptable. And I should say, some pretty miraculous things happen inside homes, around the dinner table, if you will, which is why we're so, um, why we believe so much in small groups and getting people into um, intimate settings. So, we don't have a whole lot, we don't really know exactly from this point on all that happens, but it is clear that Zacchaeus using modern day vernacular, modern day language, it's clear he becomes a believer. That's what we would say. We don't know how it happened. We don't know the discussion because it happened behind closed doors over dinner. But at some point, Zacchaeus does something like this. I want to give my life to the Lord, and I want to serve the true God. I'm done serving that other God. The terminology that we would use is that he gave his life to Christ. They wouldn't have used that terminology in that day. Let's pick it up at verse 9, and I'll show you how it's worded. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And not only does Zacchaeus get saved, he wants to tell everybody about it. Not only does he become a believer, he wants to tell everyone he is a believer, and he wants everyone to know that he has changed. It's like, hey, I've given my life to Jesus. I catch myself wondering when people found this out, if the people that saw this happening responded kind of like People responded when the Apostle Paul was saved and gave his life to Christ. You know, he had killed people, and people were like wondering, like, whoa, you know, this guy used to kill people, and now he's a believer. I wonder if when Zacchaeus made it known that he was a believer, if people were like, right, I don't think so. You're that pig tree guy. But he says, no, 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 no. I've become a believer, and I'm going to show... I'm going to prove that all the way down to my wallet. Listen to how it's recorded. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, and of course everybody else that was there, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This was a tax collector. He was in the process of getting money. He says, I'm going to give away... 50% of my income, and I'm going to give away four times that to anybody that I cheated. That was not required by Mosaic law. This was just him saying, listen, I got a new God, and I'm going to prove it. I worship the Lord now, not money. It's interesting to me that just one chapter earlier in Luke, there's another rich man. We call him the rich young ruler. It's recorded in Luke chapter 18, and I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. It's just back, and, and it's another rich man, has a very different ending. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy. He said, when Jesus heard this, He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. 
Then come and follow me. When he, the rich young ruler, heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And then Jesus looked at him because he couldn't give it up and says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What a contrast. You have a really, I mean, the rich young ruler was a really good guy. He, he kept all the commandments. He didn't commit those sins. He was, he was just a really good guy who did everything right and was rich. And then you have Zacchaeus, who was a really bad guy who was also rich. The bad guy gets saved and the good guy doesn't. Why? Because the good guy couldn't let go of his idol. The rich young ruler was a really good guy, kept all the commandments. There was nothing to say bad about him. He worked hard. He earned his money the right way, but he couldn't let go of his idol. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, was a really bad guy. He was a jerk. He was a crook, a swindler, a cold-hearted rule breaker, but he got saved. And he came to grips, to grips with the question, who do you worship? Who do you really worship? And he answered it. I worship the Lord. Now, we live... We folks, we live in materialistic America. We are all about wealth and prosperity. There is not a person in this room that is not rich by world standards. And so we're going to fight against this. I have fought against this. I continue to fight against it just like you do. How do we fight against this idol? How do we be on guard against this idol? I'm going to share with you two ways. And I need to say this. Everything I'm going to share with you are things that I have battled with myself. And it's things that I battle with myself. So I'm sharing with you what I've learned on this. Two things I would share with, with you to, to battle against this idol we call money. The first one is this. And you might not think this is a big deal, but it's huge. Try to pro don't just hear it and write it down on your notes. Try to process it. The very first way to fight against this idol is you need to realize that money does not belong to you. It's not your money. That's a very subtle thing, but you have to embrace that if you're going to fight against this. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the problem. It is the love of money. And when someone loves money, they refer to it as their own. And if you refer to it as your own, it's possible that it has already enslaved you because it isn't your money. First Chronicles chapter 29, I'm going to grab a few passages through verses 10 to 16, says this. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Wealth and honor came from you. Everything comes from you. Oh, Lord, it comes from your hands, and it all belongs to you. It's his. So often people struggle because they say, I worked hard for my money. It's not our money. If God had not given us life and the abilities we have, we wouldn't have had the ability to work for money. We came into the world with nothing. We go out of the world with nothing. All that we have in this world is because God has given it to us. It belongs to him. If you look at a piece of Paper money, don't miss. It says, in God we trust. So we have to start by first saying, it is not my money. 
It does not belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. Then the second thing, once you realize that, the second thing, it's a very simple statement, and you know it. I'm not going to share anything with you that you would disagree with, but I'll tell you it's a very difficult concept. If you want to fight against money, you've got to learn to be a giver. You've got to learn to be a giver because God is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Giving to the Lord, we say, is an act of worship. Why? Because when we give to the Lord, we are telling the Lord that we trust him. When we give, we are telling him that we understand that all we have comes from him. When we give, we tell him that we love him and his ways. And when I'm talking about giving, I'm just talking right now about just giving generously to others and to the work of the Lord. Bottom line is that we give to those things that are important to us. So if the Lord is important to us, if we answer the question, who do I worship with, I worship the Lord, then we must be givers. That will determine who we really worship. I'd like to give you some biblical instructions on how to give. We don't do this very often. I shared some of this a couple of years ago in a sermon, and everything I'm going to share with you now are things I've struggled with because I didn't grow up in the church. I, didn't, I, I really struggled with giving. So I share with you what I've learned in my 35, 40 years of being a, a believer. First... And foremost, biblical instruction on how to give is the very first thing we need to do is we need to give to the Lord's church. We need to give to the Lord's church. That's where it starts. There's two biblical views to consider. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'll give you uh, just two biblical views to consider. One's Old Testament and one's New. The Old Testament view that we need to be aware of is what is called the tithe, which means a tenth. This recognizes... The tithe recognizes that the Lord gives us 100% of what we have, but he expects us to give 10% back to him. And by the way, the tithe is just a starting point because if you study the tithe in the Old Testament, we, we talk about a tithe as 10%. In the Old Testament, there were three tithes. There was a tithe to the Levitical priests, a tithe to the festivals, a tithe to the, to the temple, and actually a third of a tithe given every three years to the, to the poor. So this is a start. And I should say that when the Bible tells us to tithe, it is not a suggestion, folks. It is a command. I had to embrace that, and we all do. Malachi 3.8.10 says, Will a man rob God? And of course, the answer would be no. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? in tithes and offerings. And it says, you're, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring your tithe, your whole tithe, into the storehouse. It could not be clearer. We are robbing God if we are not tithing to his church. Couldn't be clearer. This is why we try to teach, not that often, but first and foremost, 10% off the top, if you want to be faithful to the Old Testament, goes to the to the church. But then there's the New Testament concept, which is the second one I'd give you. It's, it's called 
Some people call it grace giving or cheerful giving. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Couldn't be any clearer. Hear this loud and clear. It's a personal decision by everyone to decide what they are going to give to the Lord. He doesn't want us to give out of duty, but out of a cheerful heart. It's very clear. And you have to process what that's saying, but you can't divorce that from the teaching of the tithe. Remember what Rosaria Champagne Butterfield shared that I read last week. One very difficult aspect is that sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. And I want you to know the whole cheerful giving, it's, it's people say, well, I'm going to wait to give when I'm, when I'm, when I'm cheerful. You're never going to get cheerful. You're never going to be able to satisfy if you don't start giving. And like what Rosaria Butterfield says, we make all kinds of excuses. And let me share with you some ways that this happens in relation to money and giving. And again, I'll tell you, uh, every one of these I struggled with myself. I don't tithe because it's an Old Testament concept that isn't part of the New Covenant. Wrong. Luke 11.42, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter. It doesn't say stop doing it, but it says you should have practiced that without leaving the former undone. And never forget what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the Old Testament or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I don't give because I'm not at the point where I can do it cheerfully. Man, I fought with that myself. Remember that 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, which says each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Prior to that, verse 6 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Acts 20, 35, Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the whole concept of cheerful giving, I'll tell you, comes from starting to give. It doesn't start cheerfully, I'll tell you. I struggled with it. But boy, it is true that when you make that a part of your life, how it blesses you and how God blesses you. Thank you. I do not give. Here's another one. I do not give, but I choose where it goes. I'm going to decide where the money goes. Do you hear it? My money. I'm going to decide where it goes. Now think practically about that for a moment. It's my money and I'll decide what I want to do with it. What if everybody in the church thought that way and they didn't choose to give it to the church? This place that you're enjoying on this day would not be there. And is it right? I'm thinking just practically. And again, these, I'm sharing with you things I thought. Is it right to be part of something, enjoy all the benefits of that place, and give nothing in return? I mean, think for a moment if your boss came up to you. I'm just trying to give you a practical illustration. And your boss said, you know what, we're a little short on money. We really appreciate you working for us, but we're not going to pay you. But we'll serve you. You know, we'll do everything we can, but you're, we're not going to give you a paycheck. You'd be out the door. 
Remember that the church belongs to God. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I don't tithe. Here's another one. I don't tithe because I give my tithe through my time. Well, I'll just tell you, I don't know where, the, where that comes from. <laughs> it's not in Scripture. But think about it practically. You know how many hours there are in a week? 168. So what that means is if you round it up, round it down. If you were going to do that, you have to give 16 or 17 hours of your time each week to the work of the Lord. Doubt that's happening, but it does not change the fact that that is not taught in Scripture. Here's another one. I don't give because I don't like how my money is spent. Well, then get someplace where you, where you like where it's spent, but you know what? You're never going to find it. In every church, you're not going to agree with everything that goes on, but it's not your place to decide how it's spent. That's up to the Lord. And even if the leaders are spending your money wrong, guess who's going to pay the price for that? The Lord, I mean, the, the leaders, and the Lord's going to hold them accountable for it. And so that's just a few ideas of how we, how we get messed up in this thing. After the giving of the tithe then guess what? You get to choose what you do with that other 90%. And I would say, give and give generously. Think above and beyond. Practice generosity. Give to the poor. Give to missionaries. Tip well. I'm so sick of hearing about cheap Christians. We, are, we, we model the Lord to people. Share the things that God has given to you. And in Malachi 3 that we read, the last part of that, it says this. Test me in this. This is the Lord speaking. Test me in this. Give to the storehouse and then test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it all. I can't tell you how many times people told me, Tim, trust the Lord. And it took me a while to get there. But boy, once I got there, it was, it's just great. Giving, is, it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I got another video for you. It's a little bit of, it's comedic in nature. And, but it, it says a little something about all this giving to the, to the Lord, and we'll end with this. I give to God by enjoying what He has given me, okay? I mean, do you really think He expects something back? Now, I know there's a lot of people at church that would not understand this line of reasoning. That's why, just to make things simple and not to cause any controversy, I like to carry what I call the little empty envelope, all right? You see, when the plate gets passed, I bloop, put it in there like that. The deacon's counting the money. They only know me as the crazy empty envelope guy, but the people sitting around me, clueless. <laughs> I win, they win, God wins. No one gets hurt because no one knows. God knows. Huh? Let me ask you a question, huh? How's your mutual fund? Hey, for that matter, how's all your funds? Ha has the fund left your funds, huh? Has your do-re-me taken a W-A-L-K, huh? 
What if I told you that I knew about an investment you could make that the return would be mind-boggling? And, 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 it's, and it's promised, it's guaranteed. I know what you're saying, there's no guarantees. This one's guaranteed, okay? Malachi 3.10, so it says in the Old Testament, it says, test me, give to God, and he will give you back. It goes like this, I give this, he gives this. I give this, he gives this. I give this, up right up there. He keeps giving. I can't outgive God, how crazy is that? <laughs> Do I love him? Sure, whatever. I'm just saying, if you give, he gives back. <laughs> I tithe, but just not like in the form of a 10% check per se. Let me tell you what I mean. When I go to church on a Sunday morning, they're selling donuts, I buy some, boom, that's a tithe. When my whole Sunday school class wants donuts and I, out of the goodness of my heart, buy a whole bunch for the Sunday school class, boom, that's another tithe. But it's not about me spending money. It's about the smile on people's faces. That, my friends, is tithe enough for me. Case in point, the church was having date nights where we could take our spouse out for an evening, and they were charging $25 for child care. Boom shakalaka tithe. I'll tell you what the biggest tithe was. When I spent over $100 on our meal, and my wife was grinning ear to ear, that, my friends, a tithe. I, I would like to give. I would, okay? But everything right now is just crazy. I mean, just crazy, you know? I mean, not normal crazy, really crazy, you know? And if after I paid my bills and took care of the things that I need and want, then I would, I would consider giving something. But not, now is crazy. We're, we're, we're going to give later. We've already talked about it. I mean, down the road, we'll be crazy givers. But right now, it's just crazy. Yeah, I have money, that's a fact. But you know what, it's a heart thing between me and the Lord and the pastor because he needs to know what I'm giving now that we have this little building campaign going on, if you know what I'm saying. And pastor, I'd give a little bit more. I'd give a little something, something if you'd have that music minister sing a couple more hymns now and then, huh? Hey, what's this, watch this. Is that a Benjamin? I think it is. Benji likes hymns, come on. You want it? Ah, come on, pastor, do what I say, huh? Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> oh, in my life, Lord, be glorified in me. I put money in the plate. Wait, wait, wait. Look what I have here. I hope it doesn't interfere. That everyone can hear how I give with cheer That everyone could be like me Please stand. I hope the message is not lost in the humor. Remember what Jesus said, be on your guard, watch out for all kinds of greed. I'm going to pray for us, pastors, elders, deacons, their wives, they'll be up here if you need to talk to somebody, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you, Lord, as, even as we talk about this thing we call money, Lord, we are well aware that you have given us so much, so very much, and Lord, we just want to say thank you. Um, Maybe we don't say it enough, but we want to say it now, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you give to us. Bless us as we go out from this place on this day and help us, Lord. We want to be generous. We want to model you. Protect us from the wiles of the evil one. I pray this in Jesus' name.